Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And this week, taking a look back at the Paris Masters, we'll talk some Billie Jean King Cup. And I also had the opportunity to speak with Canadian tennis player Alexis Gallarneau. Before we get to that, though, uh, Mike, let's start on the men's side with the Rolex Paris Masters and Big storyline here, Novak Djokovic coming back for the first time since uh, his U.S. Open finals defeat. Imagine that, eh? Coming back two months without competing, only your third event in the past four months, and taking um, a Masters 1000 title just like that. And and that's the talent and the skill of and the mastery, let's use that word, I guess, to describe Novak Djokovic, who uh, despite not being uh, a real present in presence in in recent months uh, came back and I don't want to say flicked the switch because he had a couple of tough matches in there for sure, but but persevered and and prevailed to add to his legacy and and also clinch I guess in the process his record breaking seventh year end number one ranking, which is just another astounding accomplishment in his great career. Um, but for Novak, getting some revenge over Daniil Medvedev, uh, who beat him in the U.S. Open. And that's got to feel good on, on some level for sure. And uh, I don't want to say there's no pressure in a Masters 1000 final, but obviously compared to what Novak was carrying heading into the U.S. Open, uh, this must have felt uh, much more like uh, business as usual for him. Yeah, certainly. And he, he spoke a lot about, I think, the pressure he felt at the U.S. Open that probably became overwhelming from him and he ran out of steam of course in that finals match all credit due to Daniil Medvedev who won it in straight sets but Djokovic spoke after the final saying even though he he dropped the first set in the score line here Djokovic winning 4-6-6-3-6-3 he felt relaxed on the court and felt like he was going to get his opportunities and um, with this title as well I mean not only clinching the year-end number one ranking. He did that just getting to the semifinals, but um, 37 Masters 1000 titles. Him and Rafael Nadal have kind of been jostling back and forth with this record for a while, but now he has surpassed Nadal again, who has 36. That That's an enormous number of Masters 1000s, especially considering how difficult these are to win because you always have uh, you know, the best players in the world in a deep, deep field, and you have to face you know, top, top players right off the bat. You don't really get to work your way into it as you would a Grand Slam. And and I foresee that changing hands again, probably a couple of times with them being, you know, neck and neck as they are. And of course, Rafa will hopefully and probably benefit from his, uh, you know, what is it, two dozen clay court masters events that happen right. in the lead up to Roland Garros or, or so it always seems. So uh, yeah, that'll be an interesting one to sort of watch. And Again, that's sort of a newer thing, I think, where the Masters 1000s mean so much, because when I was growing up, the players didn't put in as much effort to playing as many of them. And uh, and and I don't feel like the draws were nearly as tough as they are now. So clearly, when you look back at like Sampras, Agassi and, and players of that generation, they don't have as many because I don't think it was such a thing for them. But uh, the big three who've pushed each other so so much over the past few years, they've turned it into a big thing. And no doubt they'd like to be the one standing with that record along along with the the overall Grand Slam, um, you know, title hall as well. 
Um, but but for Novak, fantastic and uh, playing more loose, no doubt. I mean, I felt we all felt that pressure he had in New York because the stakes were so unbelievably high to come in thinking you could get the calendar slam for the first time in, in what was it, 50 plus years. I mean, just absurd to think that he was even competing for that in this day and age. Um, and, and it didn't happen and it wasn't as close as we would have liked in that final match against Medvedev. But I couldn't imagine the burden of, of carrying that day in and day out. And then you get to the final, you're there, you're so close and things just don't go the, the way you want. So um, certainly less pressure in this one for him. And yet for most players, you would imagine that would be one of the, the moments of their career, just making a, a Masters 1000 final. Yeah, and you just think about it alone. He's now won the Paris Masters uh, 1000 title six times. So it's a spot where he's always felt really, really comfortable. I think he loves the indoor hardcourt surface. We see him play so well uh, at this stretch of the season. You mentioned Pete Sampras and... There are a couple of things that come to mind when I think of Pete Sampras. One of them, of course, is uh, 14 Grand Slams and specifically such dominance on the grass courts. I think of Wimbledon when I think of Pete Sampras. But the second thing I always thought of with his name is sustained dominance and sustained excellence. And that is something that was really like the marker of Sampras' career. And finishing year-end number one is something he took a lot of pride in. Him and Novak Djokovic actually had a conversation about this, I, I want to say a year ago, um, you know, one of these virtual chats. And uh, Djokovic also said he takes a lot of pride in having the opportunity to close as the year-end number one. So for me, this is another accolade that Novak has checked off on uh, the box of growing accolades. He's holding a lot of these records now that might stand as obviously not the most impressive, but I would grade it right up there. Oh, it's up there for sure. And and as much as, you know, we're heaping praise on Novak and justifiably so, I think when you see Sampras's name brought back into the equation as as he was just surpassed, you got to give him a ton of credit too, because I Absolutely. feel like tennis history is, I don't want to say brushed him aside, that wouldn't be the right term, but kind of overlooked his greatness because of the fact there's three guys with 20 slams each, that 14 seems like such a distant number, comparatively speaking. But for his generation, that was unparalleled excellence. And as you mentioned, Pete just put so much focus into being the best he could be at all times. He took so much pride in being the, you know, the best professional tennis player that he could possibly be. And uh, I hope when, when people look back and people from generations after Pete Sampras, that they do enough fact-checking and, and digging to see what impact he had on the sport and, and what an all-time great he was, absolutely. Um, I've said this before on the podcast, I was kind of more of an Agassi fan growing up, and I don't think I fully appreciated Pete until later in his career, and, and certainly the way he ended his career is something that I, I don't know if we'll see any of the big three head out a winner with a Grand Slam as their last um, ever event, but uh, you couldn't have picked a better way to close out a great career. And um, he was kind of quiet in how he went uh, about his career. He wasn't uh, boasting. He wasn't mm -hmm. uh, a showman. He just kind of quietly went around about his business. And even today, we don't see Pete Sampras around the tour as much. And it's too bad because I'd love to get his thoughts on a more regular basis about what's happening with clearly these great players that have followed uh, in his footsteps. Yeah, certainly. I, I think he still does have a love and passion for the game. He doesn't love the limelight. That's been a reality when he was a player. And I think that's the case after his career as well. Um, just one other note here. And I'm thinking Novak Djokovic after this final and win over Danil Medvedev, he mentioned 
currently his top rival feels like it is Danil Medvedev and you go and you look at their head to head and they have really been exchanging victories here. Novak leads it six to four already. They've played 10 times, which is a lot you think about. And the last three matches, all finals, Djokovic, of course, winning the final of the Australian open. Medvedev gets him back at the U S open and Djokovic getting him here in Paris. And they've had some um, intriguing showdowns. I, I go back and think of the 2019 run that Medvedev of course went on before making the U S open final um, played a great match in Cincinnati to beat him on hard court there. They've showed down at ATP cup. They've played at the ATP finals as well. So um, I, I'm not going to say that Medvedev is going to be his number one rival moving forward overall, like without a doubt. I, I think that might be too early to say. But if we're just speaking specifically about the hard courts, for me, the two guys on the court today are unquestionably the best on that surface, one and two. Yeah, agreed. And and just as we have sort of like a recency bias in terms of, you know, tennis fans, tennis media, I think the players have a, a recency bias too. And so for Novak, he's looking at, hey, who's the guy who's giving me the most trouble over the last little while? And, uh, you know, not having the same number of uh, encounters perhaps against Rafa and Roger during the pandemic as he would have had before. I mean, at the Australian Open coming up in, in a few months in uh, in January, it'll mark two years since Novak and Roger have even played each other. So it's, um, yeah, that's a long time when you think about it. And uh, hey, hopefully we'll see a 40-year-old Roger Federer back in action at that point in time. But uh, for the time being, uh, yeah, who are the guys that are giving Novak all the challenges? It's uh, it's the young guys. I you know, We can't call them the next gen anymore because they're here and they're getting a little bit older themselves into their mid, mid-20s for sure. But uh, yeah, those are the guys he's competing with. And boy, Novak's going to be 35 years old in, in May, which uh, again, we think to Sampras, who retired at the age of 31, 32, still going strong in his mid-30s. It's, um, it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. And uh, that current generation of players, they will be on hand um, shortly in Turin, Italy, as we look ahead to the Nito ATP finals. That field is set. Uh, the best eight from the season, the names, Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Sasha Zverev, Andre Rublev, Matteo Berrettini, Casper uh, Ruud, and Hubert Hurkacz. Um, which names, I guess, pop out to you the most as you're quite surprised to see them in this group? Uh, I guess there's two that that surprise me. I mean, you got the four ones that are a, a lock: Djokovic, Medvedev, Cici, Pass, and Zverev. We all would have predicted them at the start of 2021. Rublev really uh, took his stock up another level. I feel like over the past year or so, uh, Berrettini's been so strong and consistent as well. So I don't think any of those guys are are surprises. Um, I think between you and me, we'd say that uh, Hubert Hurkacz. Um, I don't think we would have pegged him top eight, but we would have probably said, hey, he's getting close. So so I think my surprise, and I, I think you're on board with this as well, is is Casper Ruud, who has really launched himself into this this group of players and proven he's not just uh, a clay court type of guy. And uh, maybe it was the fact we had him on Match Point Canada back at the National Bank Open. And, and you know, things have progressed so well for him since the summertime. But for me, he's the big name that uh, I definitely wouldn't have pegged um, uh, remotely uh, at the start of the year for being here. 
Yeah, and, and you you hit the nail on the head. I, I think he was very much treated as a, a talented clay court specialist. Probably you went back a year ago and they thought, okay, he, he's great on clay. We know that he can win matches on the clay court surface. Can he transition his game into hard courts? And actually, when I spoke to him at the National Bank Open, he was talking about that challenge. Now that was a big focus for him, um, changing, adjusting sort of tactics and, and how he had to play on the hard court surfaces. And I look at what he did actually even just in the summertime, um, making a handful of quarterfinals, National Bank Open, he, he made the quarterfinals there in Toronto. He did so in Cincinnati and did so in Paris. And, and that's on top of earlier in the season, two Masters 1000 semis on clay and winning five titles, including three in a row, three ATP 250 events in a row, all on clay. So just completely dominated that stretch, just built up those ranking points. And here he is uh, in the top eight. And and for me, honestly, I, I don't expect him to necessarily make much noise at the ATP finals, but he belongs based on the season he had. Yeah. And he's only 22 years old. He'll be turning uh, 23 just before the new year. And uh, even if you look at a smaller tournament like San Diego, where he had to beat uh, Sonego, a- Andy Murray early on, Grigor Dimitrov in three sets, and then he just destroyed Cam Norrie, six yep. love, six two in the finals. And Cam Norrie's been one of the, the hottest players on the ATP this year as well. So, you know, confidence, just brimming full of confidence and, and someone to certainly look out for um, in terms of, you know, who's going to start next year um, as someone to really watch moving forward and, and Grand Slam contender. Casper Rude, I, I don't think, you know, uh, with what he's done this year, that's so outrageous to say something like that. No, I, I agree. I think he's going to be one of those top guys, especially at the French Open um, in, in future years. Hubert Hercatch, um, I want to pat myself on the back for him because I feel like I've been tooting his horn for a while this season, just that he was always sort of flying under the radar, had a lot of potential, and he's kind of one of these underrated guys. And actually, even just this past week at the Paris Masters, he pushed Djokovic the hardest. He took him to a third set tie break, 7-6 in the third. So he was right there with Novak, had a terrific season. We know what he did at Wimbledon, making the semifinals, beating Roger Federer in straight sets to get there. So, uh, uh, Terrific season as well for him. We'll see what he can do in uh, Turin, Italy. Uh, You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Um, We did get an interview for this week, and I had a chance to speak with a Canadian tennis player, Alexis Gallarneau, actually last month. And um, this is just another talent of one of, I think, many names in a deep field of Canadian players, both men and women, that we have to watch for over the coming years. Yeah. And before we go to your interview, I mean, I just want to kind of put it out there to our listeners, you know, how do you guys enjoy having these kind of players on our podcast? Because of course, everyone loves hearing from, you know, the established Canadian tennis stars, but we do have this good solid group of young talent who've, you know, either come through the the college rankings or are currently playing college tennis and, and taking alternate routes to becoming pros as we'll find out with your chat with, with uh, Galarno. And I'm just curious with our listeners, how much do you enjoy these? Would you like to hear these uh, sort of feature interviews a little bit more often moving forward? Because we've got a good rapport with these uh, these young players. I think we might even admittedly probably tend to get distracted more with the ATP and WTA players and coaches that we have access to. But uh, it's always great to go back sort of to the roots and to the uh, the other sort of um, avenues of, of tennis players that uh, that are still hoping to one day make it as pros. And, and Galarno is, is certainly one of those who's uh, now making his move. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, drop us a line. Let us know if you like these conversations. Um, without further ado, here is my chat with uh, Canadian tennis player Alexis Gallerno. Happy to be joined now by a professional tennis player from Laval, Quebec. He recently made his ATP main draw debut this summer. He played in doubles alongside his friend Felix Auger-Aliassime at the National Bank Open. And he's already achieved a career high of 363 in the rankings. Pleased to welcome Alexis Gallerno to the podcast. Alexis, thanks so much uh, for joining me on Matchpoint Canada. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, we, we actually haven't had you before, so it's a, a thrill to speak with you. And I know we've spoken before, but um, just to kind of um, have our listeners learn a bit more about you, um, just your upbringing in tennis, when did you first start playing? And um, was it always a part of your family growing up or were you one of the first tennis players? Yeah, I started playing tennis when I was uh, eight and a half years old. Uh, started in the my local park with my brothers. Uh, they were just playing for fun. My my parents, my mom was a gymnast. My father was a hockey player. So there was no tennis backgrounds, but um, you know it was uh, summer sports for all of the family to to go and move. So my brothers first uh, initiated me to tennis, and from there it just uh, it became a process. Yeah, and um, it's it's interesting how your career has progressed because uh, you took the college route, and I wanted to talk to you about that because it's a route some players are opting for. When you were, I guess, you were obviously a successful junior in your teenage career, was college always a part of the plan, or, or when did you make that decision that that's what you thought was best for you? Yeah, no, it was it was never in my plans. Uh, obviously, I always wanted to keep studying. Uh, it's very important value for my family, so. I was planning to maybe do online university or something, just trying to squeeze in some classes. But, uh, uh, you know, I was at the National Center for three years before I graduated from high school. So, you know, whenever you go there, your your goal is always to become a professional tennis player. And I was 17 years old. I was still a little bit immature uh, mentally and physically. So figured that'd be a good good idea for me. But uh yeah, I just uh, picked a great school. I was lucky enough to have great coaches, great surroundings. So uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, and you, you had a really successful career at NC State. Um, all-time singles record, 65 and 36. Very, very strong. And um, a bit unusual, too, because we went through the pandemic season. So you actually returned for a fifth year. How was that final season? Was it, was it odd kind of going back after, uh, I guess, missing it for a long period of time? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't go out the way that I wanted to uh, with COVID ending our season short. Uh, and also I didn't have the, the season that I wanted to in my fifth year. So it was a little bit disappointing, but, uh, you know, I was proud of the progress that I made in college and also the team has, has progressed a lot. So yeah, it just, I think everyone has been surprised by COVID and it's been challenging times. So just dealt with it so it was good well that, that's that's good that tells me that you're obviously uh your own uh harshest self-critics because you're obviously okay. being hard on yourself over your fifth season because i think you're playing some great tennis still and and now i guess you're trying to make that transition to becoming like a regular touring professional how how have you yeah. find that how, how have you found that rather because um now you're sort of traveling and, and playing um tournaments uh, along the challenger circuit yeah it's uh to be honest, it's been challenging. Uh, 
not so much the tennis itself, but just more the the outside stuff. Um, you know, having to travel different places uh, with COVID, it makes it extra difficult right now to enter countries. Some some of those countries are just very uh, very hard to get in. You need uh, some so many forms, which my mom has been helping me a lot with. But you know, still it's been a lot of uncertainties and uh, just. You know, it makes me appreciate it so much that I'm able to to play professionally now and follow my dreams. So it's exciting, and I think as I move along, I'm gonna get more comfortable, and hopefully, this this COVID uh, pandemic can can kind of get better, and it will smoothen all those those traveling. So yeah, it's been challenging for sure. And are are you traveling alone as well, or do you have your team or, or coach with you? Yeah, I've been traveling alone for uh, for the since I graduated. Uh, I've got a coach home, Dennis, who's uh, been a great uh, great support for me. Uh, just helps me so much from from a distance. Uh, obviously, it's just so hard to travel with someone now with uh, uh, with those extra costs and all of that. But uh, hopefully, I can start having uh, someone on the road with me because I think it makes a, a big difference. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, just going back for a second to your experience playing college in, in NC State, that's such a team environment. And then it feels like when players make that transition to become a, a professional t- tennis player, I mean, apart from, you know, you have coaches and whatnot, it feels like you're kind of off on your own. How do you think um, just the experience of playing those five seasons at NC State uh, will help you in your professional career? Because it is a different environment. Yeah, I think it's helped me a lot to become, you know, disciplined, uh, having to, to manage school and tennis at the same time, uh, just makes you so much better at time management and all of that. Um, I also think I improved a lot, uh, uh mentally, you know, I, I feel like there's been a lot of challenging moments, uh, lately and I've been, I've been answering them really well. So, I think that's due to college, due to just my path that I've been on since, you know, eight years old. So it's just, uh, it's the process and it's been, it's been great at just learning every week. And uh, Canadian tennis, I know, is, is so tight knit. I, I think we're, we're very good with that in this country. And uh, you had the chance to play with Felix at the National Bank Open, someone who's, I think, been a friend of yours for a long time. What, what it what did it mean to you to, to get to share the court with him at, at such a big tournament like that in Toronto? Yeah, it, it meant a lot. It was uh, really generous of himself to, you know, play with me this, uh, this Rogers, this uh, national bank open uh, week. Uh, and it was a great experience. Uh, I think we were a little bit disappointed because we, we played a pretty good match, but I mean, thinking back about it, it's just, it was been a dream of mine and, I think it's been a dream of his also just to play with a friend that's uh, in Toronto. So it was cool. Yeah. And, and look, I know he's, uh, he's actually younger than you. He's 21. You're, you're 22, but uh, he's, he's obviously a, a fantastic professional player and has all this experience on the tour. Is he someone you kind of can view as a, as a mentor or someone you, you know, you text with chat with for, for any ideas of, of making this transition and, and what it's like to be a pro. Yeah, it's been so helpful. Uh, you know, we text every week. Uh, you know, he's very generous of his time, and you know, all the knowledge that he's that he's accumulated over the years. 
so I, I, you know, I know what it takes to become a top 20 player in the world and to make that transition. Also, it's, it's a process and it's about getting better every week. So that's what I'm doing right now. And my time will come. So he's been very helpful with that. Keeping a, keeping a, a good vision. Yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, top top 20, which is, uh, I think, probably maybe a goal for a lot of uh, aspiring professional tennis players to get on the circuit. H- how do you sort of break down goals? I guess, say, you know, 2021 is coming to a close pretty shortly. But if you're going into 2022, do, do you set certain goals or markers that you're trying to accomplish through a season? Yeah, um, you know, I, I never actually put any numbers, but I think it's important now because, I think it's going to be step by step and my next step is to crack the top 200. So hopefully by next year, that will be, that will be attainable. And from there, you know, I think I've waited a long time, you know, preparing my game in college for five years now with great coaches, with a great coach at home. So I feel like my game is there and it's just about uh, having a full season with uh, great support and being healthy and all of that. So hopefully top 200 by next year and get greedy and get tough to get to top 100 and ultimately uh, top 20 in the world. <laughs> we would love to see that. And uh, yeah. it's good. It's good to be greedy because, you know, we, we spoke to Layla Fernandez in the past and we yeah. always thought, wow, she has major goals and she went out and made the finals of the U S open. So I think it's great to dream big. Um, I, I wanted to finish with something um, that we like to do with some of our guests that I like to do is called rapid fire questions. So we get to know yeah. you a little bit better. Um, I'll ask you just a few quick questions. You can just give me a fast answer. So we get to know you a little bit more. Um, firstly, would you call yourself, a morning or a night person morning okay well most people say night so so that's that's good to hear uh coffee or tea coffee coffee okay um what is your favorite shot to hit on the tennis court forehand forehand what is your favorite surface to play on uh hard court okay do you have a a, a memorable win, a win at some point in your career that you that you look back to or cherish the most? Uh, probably a college match against Minnesota. I just came back from a surgery, so that was a great win and great win for myself, but also for my team. If you weren't a professional tennis player, what career do you think you would uh, venture into? Uh, into finance probably banking, investing, uh, private investing. Okay. Do you have a favorite, uh, movie? Uh, favorite movie, probably Rocky. Rocky. Nice. Okay. Um, and in terms of what's on your playlist right now, what's, what's, who's the last artist you listen to? Uh, Dermot Kennedy, his whole album, just anything from him. Okay, nice. And if you could share a meal with any current or former tennis player, who would it be? Uh, Rafael Nadal. Nice. Okay. I like that answer. All right, Alexis, it's so great to chat with you and um, follow, follow along with you as you progress in your career. We wish you all the best and we'd love to chat with you again on Matchpoint Canada. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
there you have it. My interview with Alexis Gallarno, who I should mention and update his ranking. Um, it is now 320 in the world. So he's slowly climbing up um, currently in South America, just playing the challenger circuit. He's making that transition to becoming a touring professional. And, you know, in this conversation, he admitted it is difficult right now to do so. Yeah. With the pandemic and limitations for travel and, and not being able to travel with a coach and, and, you know, have as many voices as you normally would, even traveling with family is difficult. So uh, I got to say, first off, if you had asked me what his ranking was, uh, I would have been probably off by several hundred. So I was pleasantly surprised to see he's coming close to the top 300 in the world. I was also surprised when you mentioned that his buddy Felix Ogialiasim was actually younger than him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had that question about the mentorship because of Felix's obvious success at the professional level. And I really loved in the summertime when Felix chose to partner up with uh, Alexis in doubles at the National Bank Open, which he didn't have to do. I mean, not that Felix uh, focuses primarily on doubles, of course, but he is an established, I would say now, doubles player on the ATP Tour could have certainly chosen to go with, uh, you know, regular partner or yeah. or someone more established, but said, hey, you know what, I'm going to uh, partner up with my buddy. We're going to have a good time playing in front of the Canadian fans. And and he knew that it would be such a, a moment for Alexis to, to, to have that um, type of opportunity. And, and as Alex said, it was really generous of Felix to play with him. So, uh, you know, we, we don't we, we couldn't pump Felix's tires anymore on this podcast because uh, we, we think he's so great. And that to me was just another example. And, and nice to see the two young, uh, you know, French Canadian players team up and have that moment. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think that was important for him. And uh, we got into, of course, his college tennis experience and, and you know, getting in five years at North Carolina State, which he admitted uh, wasn't actually the plan when he was uh, training at the National Tennis Center in Quebec and uh, admitted to being, I think, too immature, he said, when he was 17 years old. So I think good on him for taking this route. I think it's... Um, maybe sometimes overlooked as a, as a possible route to become a pro- professional tennis player, go and play quality college tennis. And uh, currently right now we have plenty of those juniors who are taking that route. And I think it's worked for Gallarno to this point. He's still just 22 years old. He, he has time to grow. Um, we've seen decent challenger results last year. He won an ITF title. He made quarterfinals in Cleveland, Bogota. I noted he had a win over Mackenzie McDonald. If you want to point out a victory over a, a very good player. So, um, I'm curious to see uh, what we get from him in his uh, career in the next couple of years and, and moving forward. Yeah, you know which win I picked out actually was one over Bernard Tomic, uh, 6-1, 6-2 <laughs> yeah, in September. Yeah, that was pretty but, dominant. But yeah. I wrote in my notes here, I wrote in brackets like, well, whatever that's worth, right? Because Tomic, <laughs> you just never know what you're what you're getting. Uh, also, when he said he chose to do five years of college tennis, that made me feel a little bit better about my six years of my undergrad degree that, that I okay. did, which had nothing to do with any uh, sport, but just uh, me navigating my way through life. So I can certainly relate to needing a little extra time, perhaps to uh, mature. We'll be following uh, Alexis Gellarneau in his first full season of pro in 2022 coming up and uh, definitely have him back on the pod again to see how he's, he's doing there. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to give another also quick shout out to uh, a former kind of junior star that gets overlooked. He won two junior singles uh, slams is Philip Peliwo, who is still grinding away at the age of 27. And I noted this on Twitter, but his past few weeks, he's again playing some good good tennis. He won uh, an ITF at Newer Sultan in Kazakhstan a few weeks ago. Then he made another semifinal, just made a semifinal in Israel. So there's another player, you know, 
27 years old, nearing 30, hasn't had probably the success he he dreamed of given his successful junior junior career. But um, I admire the fact that he's still dedicated to this path and and still plugging away and, and traveling and playing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, also just points to the fact that junior success doesn't necessarily translate into having an easy transition into being a pro. I mean, I tie Pelavo with, with Jeannie Bouchard in the sense that they both won junior Wimbledon, I believe the, the same year it was a, a double, you know, victory for Canadians that year. And Jeannie obviously made that transition to pro a lot quicker and, and more easily and has had a ton of success, success yep. that most WTA players would, would just love to have at some point in their career. And for Philip, uh, yeah, great to see he's uh, still out there battling and, uh, and nice to see and, and acknowledge when he has moments like the ones you've just pointed out recently. Yeah, certainly. Um, we will shift over to the women's side. We had a couple interviews last week as we checked in with Canada at the Billie Jean King Cup finals. And uh, we'll start right there with Canada's performance. You know, we had the opportunity to speak with Carol Zhao, Rebecca Marino. Both saw them play as they competed uh, in Group A against France and the Russian Tennis Federation. We knew going in, this was always an uphill battle on paper. They were probably ranked three in this group of three countries but for me um despite not coming through the group opening the day with a victory over france before falling to the russian tennis federation uh super positive signs i thought considering you entered the event without leila fernandez and bianca andrescu it went as well as i think we could have expected with the matchups they were faced with in that opening round pool uh, clearly, they had the eventual champions in there, the Russians. Um, we knew that was going to be the toughest matchup. They still had to go up against France, who were defending champs from a couple of years ago. And even though the French team wasn't perhaps quite as strong as, as previously on paper, they were the favorites. And so for Canada to come out and get that victory on day one, I think that was the win for them right there. That was what allowed them to leave, um, you know, with their heads, holding their heads up high. And uh, Francoise Abanda, again, coming up clutch on the big stage. You know, you really just wish that she could stay healthy um, because I think she could still challenge for a top 100 spot. And she's certainly young enough to still give it a go, but she's just had so many injuries over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rebecca Marino had a ton of pressure on her shoulders, basically being, being counted on in singles and in, in doubles um, due to the, um, you know, lack of depth, I suppose, if, if it's okay for me to say. Um, with our two big singles players missing um, and uh, and Gabby in, in doubles, you know, doing well against uh, France, of course, with Marino, who they don't have a ton of, you know, chemistry. They haven't played a ton together, obviously, over the years. Um, so I think best case scenario is that we beat one of the two nations we were facing there and, and how excited uh, I am for April 15th and 16th when Canada hosts Latvia at home. We don't know what city yet, but it will be on Canadian soil. And if we have Bianca and Layla, or even one of those two, you got to be feeling pretty good about that prospect to get back to the Billie Jean King uh, Cup finals next uh, November. Yeah, what a what a great opportunity. I hope they can come through. Uh the big name I'd be curious to see uh, if she does go and competes for Latvia, Yelena Ostapenko, uh, who knows Gabby Dabrowski well, I, she could represent Latvia there. They do have some good players. Anastasia Sevastova also comes to mind. I believe she's Latvian as well. Um, but for me, I would be favoring uh, Canada in that matchup. And just further to Rebecca Marino, who was kind of shouldering the load here as the top singles player, um, 
we don't always, I, I mean, take moral victories and losses, but I think Marino should be doing that with the way she played, not only against France, um, fighting against Elise Cornet in a tough singles match. I believe it was six, four, seven, six, but then turn it around the next day. You're playing Anastasia Pavlochenkova, who for me, you look at group A and all the players there. She was the best singles player, I think, in that field. Um, French Open semifinalist, enjoying a fantastic season, such a dangerous, powerful baseline player. And Rebecca Marino pushed her to three sets. I, I think that spoke a lot to her level on the court. I asked uh, Pavla Cenkova afterwards um, just what she made of Rebecca Marino's level and pointed out, you know, she's ranked 148. And uh, Nastia said she's playing much, much better than that. Um, so I already feel like Marino's playing at a top 100 level, maybe even higher than that. And that gets me just so excited for what's in store for her in 2022. Yeah, Marino from start to finish. I mean, we're almost finished the year now. Uh, She has proven that she can hang with the top uh, level players in the game. And uh, if she's healthy in 2022 and able to play a full schedule, I, I can't see how she doesn't end up in the top 100. It's not like she's got a ton of points to defend either. So mm-hmm. um, I really think sky's the limit. And she's proven to herself and to, and to tennis fans, not just in Canada, but outside of our country as well, um, just what she can bring onto the court um, when she's healthy with her big serve, her big game. And uh, she's got that that belief now as well. So, uh, yeah, we're also very proud of what Marino has done. And, uh, you know, even with a healthy Bianca and Layla, I, I think you want to have Rebecca in the mix there too now because she gives Canada, uh, you know, another interesting player and a unique game that uh, she plays different than Bianca and Layla as well. And one final thought on this for me is when you're looking at the WTA, WTA rankings right now, Bianca's number 24 and Layla's only two spots behind her at number 26. And boy, has Layla ever closed that gap with how she's played this year and not too far off that top 10 goal that she set for herself at the start of 2021 she's not going to make it but she should be really impressed with just how close she came really yeah i think she she should be thrilled and you might think oh she's gonna have so much pressure to defend u.s open finals points look at everything before that though after uh, she won her first w8 WTA title. She really had a stretch of the season, probably four or five months where she didn't really put up any significant results. And I think she's become such a stronger player that you think she could really rack up a lot of ranking points and make a charge up, um, you know, throughout the 2022 season on clay uh, before you even get to the U S open. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. I wanted to just touch on the final congrats to the Russian tennis federation for their victory, defeating Switzerland in a final that did have some controversy, um, it was 2-0. Daria Kasukina won the first match over Jill Teichman, 6-2-6-4. Then uh, the surprise player Ludmila Samsonova stepping in for Anastasia Pavlochenkova defeated Belinda Bencic, 3-6-6-3-6-4. After this, uh, the Swiss coach and Bencic uh, referred to Pavlochenkova being subbed out due to a knee injury, I believe 10 to 15 minutes prior to the second match, they referred to it as ugly. Um, And I don't know if that is tactics wise that they thought that this was some type of fishy move. We don't really honestly know. Um, I think the thought here from the Swiss team is they knew all day that Anastasia Pavlochenkova would not be uh, able to play. Um, 
So they should have announced Samsonova as the second singles player long before rather than about 15 minutes before the match. I'll ask you, fair or foul here? Yeah, you know, my take on it, honestly, is like sour grapes. Come on, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. if you gave me the option, who would you rather play here, Mike? Would you rather play Pavlyuchenkova or Samsonova, right? Like, that's going to be an easy decision for me any day True. of the week. And so you'd think Benchic would have would have made the same choice if given the option. So I understand you don't have the same amount of time to plan and prepare. And mentally, you think you're playing one type of player and all of a sudden it's another one. But come on, give me a break. You're a professional. You want to go out there. You're going to beat whoever. You got to have that feeling that you're going to beat whoever's in front of you. You know, you know it's going to be one of maybe two or three different players, right? And even if you're expecting one, it's not like they've suddenly thrown someone in there that you never heard of before. You knew she was on the uh, the Russian squad. So yeah, to me... I don't buy it. You lost the match. And that's that. Yeah, fair point. Well said. Uh, well said. And uh, congrats to Russian Tennis Federation for their title. Um, maybe Canadian fans will take a little solace in the fact that, hey, we lost to the eventual champions. So, And we did that without having Layla and Bianca. We so can hope at least one of the two is playing uh, in the Billie Jean King Cup tie, uh, which will be next season against Latvia. Is that in April? Yeah, April 15th and 16th. And, uh, you know, it'll be really cool if they host it in a city that doesn't typically get tennis here in Canada. And I know we have a lot of listeners in both Eastern and and especially, I'd say, also Western Canada who love tennis but don't get to see it as regularly, Mm -hmm. especially during a pandemic with all the smaller events being cancelled, unfortunately. But, you know, aside from Toronto and Montreal, there are cities in this country that would just love to have top-level tennis. I've seen uh, international competition out in British Columbia. The fans are rabid there. So it'll be cool to see what city does get to host this. And, um, you know, also I should say for you and me, we'll be talking some more Canadian tennis on the international stage uh, coming up a week from now as we preview the uh, Davis Cup finals with Canada competing there as well. Yeah, and such terrific memories, of course, from 2019 when Canada reached the Davis Cup final before falling to Spain. Denis Shapovalov, Vashik Pospisil leading the way. They'll be back along with Felix Ojealiasim, so they're bringing the big guns uh, here to Davis Cup. Great opportunity. Uh, We should wrap on the WTA finals quickly in Guadalajara. It is starting up on Wednesday. Uh, I'm just going to read you the eight names here that we have confirmed. Arena Sabalenka, Karolina Pliskova. Barbara Krajcikova, Iga Sviantek, Maria Sakkari, Garbina Muguruza, Paula Badosa, and Annette Contivate. And this is the most fascinating statistic, I think, of the event. Six of the eight players here are making their maiden appearance at the WTA finals, which I, I think speaks to the type of season 2021 was on the WTA side. Yeah, I wonder when the, when the last time that happened was. Um, we are missing, of course, two of the slam winners from the past year. In Naomi Osaka, who won the Aussie Open, and Emma Raducanu, who won recently in New York. Uh, neither one of them is in the top 10 at current time. Osaka only played, I believe, 12 tournaments all year long. And we know of the challenges and, and struggles that she faced, the adversity she faced, um, you know, preparing to to play in, in tournaments. And, and hopefully she's back in 2022 and and feeling better. And, uh, and Emma Raducanu basically, you know, just emerged out of nowhere almost between her appearances at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open had hardly even played or hadn't played any official WTA events until after 
her first Grand Slam title. How funny is that? So the two of them not in contention for the, the final tournament of the year there. Uh, we got a couple of experienced players in that group. You listed uh, Karolina Pliskova being the oldest, of course, at 29, Muguruza second at 28 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's a total toss-up when you look at those names. I couldn't, I couldn't even give you an inkling of who I would pick <laughs> to emerge um, victorious at the end of this one. Yeah, and look, Annette Contivate is one of the last names who snuck in, but you look at maybe the hottest player on the tour right now in terms of form, Contivate, has been on absolute fire. Um, Indian Wells uh, quarterfinals, but after that, winning the Kremlin Cup and then winning the Transylvania Open. So she's won two tournaments in a row. You're looking at form of players. She's playing fantastic. Arena Sabalenka, I look at the first half of her season and think it was a bit more dominant than the second half. Of course, she did have a good U.S. Open before losing to Leila Fernandez in the semifinals. I feel like we haven't seen her on the court in a while. Maria Zachary had a great season. She could be dangerous. Iga Sviantek, always a threat. And yeah, it's it's wide open. Of course, Ash Barty shut down her season. So she's not going to be there despite the fact that she's world number one. So for me, any of these players could do it. Even Paula Bedosa could do it. Who knows? Uh, which I think makes it intriguing. And it's uh, starting up this Wednesday. There are some names that's kind of funny to me when I look at this list who aren't there, right? And uh, I'm sure we could see them back at some point in the future. Like, for example, Simona Halep, not mm-hmm. there. Osaka, as we previously mentioned, not there. Serena Williams, not there. Will we ever see Serena back in the final eight? Uh, you know, how much is she going to play next year? Yeah. How much longer is she going to play, period? I mean, there there were a lot of questions as we sort of wind down the season here. A lot of questions that, that we'll tackle before we officially call it a year for Matchpoint Canada. And uh, I think Serena will be an interesting talking point, as well as Bianca Andreescu, who was uh, in this tournament two years ago. And that's where, you know, the injuries kind of picked up again for her, unfortunately. And it'd be great to see her back there, too. But um, a lot of question marks. But for right now, uh, eight very deserving women in this tournament. And we'll keep you posted on that, too, as we uh, look ahead here on the podcast. Yes, we certainly will. We'll keep you posted with all things Canadian tennis as well. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.